This is Max Lentz with Baltimore Spirits Company. Pour yourself a dram and settle in. This is the Cask Chasers Podcast. Right, cast chasers well we are back we are back we are back um i'm i'm with a good friend uh i'm a fan um you know we are in the maryland delaware area specifically and i know you listeners are all over the scattered among the world but we like our local distilleries um and this one specifically is putting some fantastic stuff out and growing and uh, doing some really cool things, which we're going to get into. But we're about to talk to my friend uh, Max Lentz of the Baltimore Spirits Group, or Baltimore Spirits Company, that is, where they produce whiskey and other spirits in gorgeous bottles. Um, I am cheating a little bit because I'm drinking his Epic, but I'm drinking it in coffee, um, which I think is, if you're a listener, you know I don't mind mixing my drinks in delicious cocktail format. This is simply just whiskey and a coffee. Um which I don't know if you can consider that a cocktail, but it's still delicious. You don't need to put their whiskey in uh, coffee or anything else. It's fantastic on its own, but it does make a nice ingredient if you do want to drink early in the morning, like I am, or whatever time it is right now. Is it 1 o'clock? I'm being told it's 1 o'clock. i get, I got to get my life together. Before I rattle on more insults for myself, uh, let's just get him on the show because he's ready to talk. Uh I, they can't see you, so I do want to talk a little bit about the glorious mustache and the man behind the mustache, Mr. Max. What's up, buddy? How is it going? Oh, it's good to be back. I didn't have the mustache last time I was on the show. No, no, you didn't. So it's a surprise. I surprised you. I like it. I like it a lot. I, I'm going to call you out a little bit. I think the last time you were on, it was in studio, and we were all equally, equally hungover from different events. I don't know if I remember that. Um, I, I did not feel great. I was on my way back from out of state, I think. Yes, that's right. That's right. And we had done a, uh, a, a live event the night before. So we were uncomfortable. But then we got comfortable because you brought all your wares and your spirits and what, what have you. But the first time we met was actually at Old Line. You were for their, there for their whiskey roundup. Um and uh, that's when I, I, it was you, uh, Old Line, of course, and I'm blanking on the other group, but we're not talking to them right now. We're talking to you. So who cares who they are? Um, and that's the first time I had it. And I was super, super impressed. Um, you're making some really cool stuff. And we kind of talked about the history of what you guys did and how you got to where you are in the last episode. And we can maybe touch on that a little bit, but I'm more interested in where you are now. Because you know the listeners can go back in time and listen to how you all started, but uh, what's going on now? You guys are leaving the state, spreading out. You got some new cool stuff coming out. You just finished a four year, I believe. Um, you got some stuff happening, man. Let's talk about that a little bit. What's what's going on in your world? Twenty twenty three, big big year for Baltimore Spirits Company, and it's kind of just started. Um, yes, last time people should go back and listen to the last last episode. Last time. I was eating Crocs, and this time I'm wearing crocodile shoes. You yeah, know? you've but grown up. <laughs> um, neither, neither of those things are true. 
Um, but uh, yeah, Baltimore Spirits Company. Um, this is kind of the year. It, it takes the whiskey world is weird, man. It takes a long time to get where you're trying to go, especially if you're kind of starting from scratch. And, uh, you know, we didn't source anything ever. And um, we were all self-funded to start. I mean, we really, really kind of bootstrapped the whole thing at the beginning. And the whiskey we're releasing this year, we produced in 2019. Um, so it was it was pre-COVID. Uh, it was before we had a tasting room. We were, you know, I was doing a bunch of sales trips out to California. We were kind of growing these other brands. So we were anticipating a 2023 uh, that that had literally 0% of the things between now and then that actually happened. So uh, you just kind of guess. Right now we're producing for 2028. You guess what kind of company you can be in, in five, four or five years and try and uh, produce accordingly. So it took us a long time to get here, but uh, last Saturday... Uh, we finally released uh, what we consider the flagship of the company. So it took us almost eight years to get what we would consider the core product on the shelf. Uh, and that is our four plus year uh, aged straight rye whiskey, double copper pot distilled, percent mm. rye, most of the rye sourced in Maryland. And uh, actually a lot of it malted in Maryland these days as well, which is really cool. Um, and that is Epic Reserve. And that is what we consider kind of the centerpiece of our entire distilling operation is the four plus year rye. And it's the kind of branch from which our future expressions will branch off of. So when we do cast finishes uh, and introduce more kind of permanent skews as the line expands, they're going to be variations of this over four year thing. Now, the two year rye that you're drinking now is sticking around and oh, that good. will be Oh yeah. It's not going anywhere. Young rye is an awesome category and we're not leaving it behind. Um, but that's going to be kind of specifically our kind of cocktail centric rye whiskey. Uh, so it's, you know, a little bit brighter, breadier, fruitier because it, it doesn't have as much barrel age in it. Um, so it is really nice to use in cocktails and also a little more price appropriate for people who want to drink cocktails. So, uh, rye and coffee, I'm all about it. Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Could, yeah nature's creamer no maybe nature already has a creamer don't they don't worry about that um yeah let's not yeah yeah, not yeah. yeah bobby says things that make no sense <laughs> um it's funny you brought up about time um i was just talking to the group the team over at uh, reservoir in virginia on the last episode and time came up but then before that i was in the new york tartan parade um the scottish parade and it was their scottish festival and i was drinking with some scots and everything and I met a guy, and he was um, a literal Scottish poet, uh, not Robbie Burns. He's dead, but a new one. Uh, there's another one. Um, but he was he was a musician. He was playing uh, for the event at a local pub and things like that. But he asked me, he says, how do you build an entire uh, podcast around whiskey? What What is so important about whiskey? He didn't ask it in a rude way. But I said, you know, being a poet, being a songwriter, think it. It's imagine you you write a song or you write a poem that you may never get to read, or if you do, you may put all your heart into this and then you won't get to touch it for years. You know what I mean? It it, it doesn't get to be produced the next weekend. It, it you have to wait, and then God knows what'll happen in four years, or you know if it's going to be any good, if it's going to be worth it. Um, all that effort could be for nothing. All that effort could be for everything. And I said, that's why whiskey makers are kind of like my heroes, because I feel like, you know, it's such an art form that you have to bear all to and then go, well, hope it worked. You know what I mean? So 
to see companies like yours kind of grow from, you know, scratch. And like you said, nothing against sourcing. Um, but you didn't source, you're doing it uniquely. You're doing it in Baltimore and, um, Maryland, um, which, you know, everybody thinks whiskey comes from one place. It doesn't, but you do this and you build this company. And I felt lucky enough that I got to talk to you kind of, I don't want to say at the beginning, but somewhere at the beginning. And here we are part two and you're already, you're at your four year, things are happening and you still look healthy and you, you know, I'm not talking you off a roof or anything and you know, you're not doing roofing. You're, you're still in the business. Um, I think that's why this exists. I think you're kind of the cornerstone to why this whole thing exists. And, um, that's enough kissing your ass, Max, but, um, no, no, I appreciate it. It's, um, I, I consider it well kissed. Um, (laughs) it's a, no, it's a funny thing in that, like, a lot of people, if you were like watching a whiskey commercial, you'd have guys distilling some whiskey. They make their first barrels, they fill it up, and they use a hammer to hit the bunghole. And then they like high five, and they're like, "And now we wait." Yeah. Except it's it's way worse than that. It is there. You're, you're catching me on a good day, not up on the roof. But Lord knows I've had them. I mean, really, you you do that. You make the whiskey and you put it in the barrel and you hammer it down. And you kind of look at each other and you're like, "I don't know." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, and you just get like a low level adrenaline rush that just persists for two to eight years um, until it comes out of barrel. And we were lucky with our very first batch um, that it ended up being very good. Uh, and we we're very lucky this, the first kind of four year. Now we've released single barrel four years before, but this is the first time, you know, we use multiple yeasts, we use multiple barrel chars. So we like blending complexity as opposed to single barrel expression. There's always the honey barrel stuff really fun single barrels, but in a way you should always expect to make better whiskey when you have the opportunity to blend. Yeah. And we in general try blend on a batch by batch basis, try and put the best whiskey in the bottle and not worry too much about having it taste exactly the same. Every time we'd rather have it be to the same level of quality. Every time you'd never mistake Epic for another rye because it's the, the system we use is so unique um, that it really creates its own spirit there's some pot distilled rise out there, but even like, you know, Woodford reserve, it's not a double copper pot distilled thing. Mm-hmm. They like do a stripping run through a column and finish it through a pot, which is a normal way to do it. We are doing really strictly old school, double, double copper pot distilling. We don't have a column or a plate in the place. No hybrid distilling. Uh, none of that. Um, how Irish, during, how Irish of you? Well, it is a little Irish and Scottish of us, uh, and there's there's Irish and Scottish heritage in our uh, ownership, including in in myself. Um, and it shows. We, it's yeah, <laughs> I, I, I do kind of wear it on my face. Um, so uh, during the release party on Saturday, so first we, you know, I did like a guided tasting. First day it was out, and I got up and on the microphone and went through the tasting notes and stuff lots of fun. And then I sat down and then 15 minutes later, we got an email from San Francisco world spirits competition telling us that our brand new whiskey on the day it was released won the double gold medal yep. uh, at San Fran. So the embargo, uh, I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but the embargo came off yesterday. So we officially announced it to the world, but that marks the second time that our very first batch of our whiskey won double gold. Congrats. At its, you know, the two year did as well, which was, a whole other thing, but, um, yeah, super cool. Um, competitions are not everything, uh, but it is like the timing just couldn't be better. And it really 
you have so much kind of stress about introducing something to the world. Yeah. Uh, it's nice to, nice to have a little something backing you up that you're I, not a crazy person. I remember talking to the team when we drink your whiskey for the first time and I looked at them and I said, man, this thing's going to win. This is going to win something. It, it, this is a gold all over it. So I don't know if I'm the reason it won. Maybe, you know what I mean? Who knows? You know, but I remember calling may, I mean, probably, but I remember calling it early on. No, but congratulations on that very well earned uh, my friend it is it is an excellent spirit i'm glad to see that more people are going to get to partake in it that's what i i'm going to be honest with you and you probably feel the same way competitions are great it feels good to win but really there's a there's two groups of whiskey drinkers there's whiskey drinkers that will just regardless of what the you know san francisco tells us or new york or whatever it has or you know the whiskey vault or any of those you know places tell us they'll drink we'll drink whatever we find and whatever we like but there's a larger group out there that doesn't get a chance to see you need to be in a little bit of a spotlight for them to even notice and i think that's kind of the bigger picture for you so Although I've liked your whiskey, and I know other people have too, I think it's cool because now you're more, what's the word, you're, you have a little more stage room, I think, right? Kind of a public stage, and that was a big deal for us from the beginning. You know, we've we've won a number of awards, uh, and that, but we were always only available in Maryland, uh, particularly the rye. So it was nice to kind of plant some seeds and gain a little bit of um you know, get some eyeballs to the company, even where we weren't available and kind of, uh, sow a bit of story, um, pre-availability, but, uh, you're right. This is, it's a big thing, especially now, because uh, this will be the first year we send Epic Rye out of state. So we'll be sending the two and the four year out to California, uh, California, Washington state, Nevada, and Arizona on the West coast. will all receive it come, uh, August, basically August one. And then we are, working on opening a couple of other markets, nothing set in stone, but at least one other big market and also a little bit of regional expansion. And beyond that, we should have placements in DC stores that are able to ship to about 30 states, which would make it kind of technically available to the majority of people. Um, so good timing and uh, hopefully people's kind of curiosity has been peaked over the years since we've uh, appeared on a number of lists uh, with some good awards. So we're hoping it all comes together. Mostly excited about sharing the work with people, yeah. um, getting feedback and, um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Have you ever been uh, asked to judge a competition? Can I interview you? Oh, wow. I've only been on one interview before and that was, um, well, they don't call them interviews. They call them interventions, but still it's, you know, I dressed <laughs> up. Uh, I have not, I have, been in conversation about judging um and i've been interested in judging and i've worked with people on panels um there's some talk that i may be i may judge an upcoming um spirits competition but um no i have it um i i mean i'm a judgmental person so i feel like every time i sip a whiskey i'm judging um it's a, a good feature yeah yeah um but i know so man we're having a lot of conversations that are harkening back to recent conversations. I'm going to drop a little bit of a name here. I was talking with Heber, Heather Wibbles, um, the cocktail Contessa, if you haven't heard of her. Um, she's been on the show. She's written some books. She's contributed to some magazines, and she is a judge. Um, and we were chatting a little bit about judging and what it takes to be a good judge. And you have to hone in on your palate so much to not get lost and 
to not make them make a mistake. They take it seriously, is what, and you would hope a judge would. But it's it's more than just sipping a whiskey and saying it's really good. Does it tell the story? Um, is it consistent? Does it have a signature of where it comes from? Have I tasted this before? You know, if you're just making a whiskey that maybe is a good rye, but it tastes like every other rye you've had, um, they have to think through those things. And I don't know if I'm there yet. Does that make sense? Maybe I am. It I don't does, know. does. But I think, I don't know. I would... Um... I think everyone's experience of judging is a little different because beyond that, a lot of these are truly blind, mm. you know, a tray of Glen Cairns and you're going to one after the other. So trying to guess uh, like an appellation of a bourbon or something, does it tell a story is uh, maybe asking a lot if you have no bottle or story to, to associate with. Um, well, I think, so I think I, to, to, I think what she meant by that wasn't necessarily, a story like we all have stories of our, but I think more of um of youth versus grain versus barrel type versus you know the notes coffee you know you can you can encourage out certain notes when you're making a whiskey you may taste something and say okay yeah we're making a rye sure but I want this rye to be more rock fruit prevalent or whatever like that so i think that's more of the because you're right it is blind they have no idea because if they knew they could pick their favorites you know what i mean yes which of course there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there well uh, i know of a couple of uh never mind we won't go down that road. that's that's when i want the show to end i'll go through i'll start ratting everybody out drunk yeah. on one rabbit episode you should do a some sort of you know mash grand finale um, just yeah. destroy everyone's career. Yeah. And the last thing would be great. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think it's important to be honest, but I think it's important to be too honest. Um, but when you're too on there, listen, there are, um, there are some whiskeys that there are some whiskeys that are judged and some judges out there, in my opinion, that are incredibly biased that, that do get a little heads up that, um, that may, you know, that may influence certain spirits out there that don't necessarily need it. I mean, there's some look, look, and like everything else, it's there's there is a spectrum of of bad out there. So I tell people, you know, take awards, and not to take away from your award because any of your awards because they are greatly earned. Um, but take them with a grain of salt. Also, try be your own judge. You know what I mean? Get out there and taste it yourself. And then there are some whiskeys. I'll be honest with you that. I have done that too, mostly bigger Jack Daniels. Hell, I'm wearing a Jack Daniels t-shirt. Um, I've become recently become friends with ET, the national brand ambassador from Jack Daniels, um, because I've shit all over Jack Daniels for years. And then one day he's like, we make other stuff. So, you know what I mean? So you really do have to taste, keep tasting, try different stuff. And, um, but the award is a great way, like I said, to get that spotlight. And the San Francisco Spirits Award is one of the ones I like. New York is too, because I know a lot of the judges that judge there, and I know they do care, and they take it super seriously, um, almost too seriously, to a to a and violent it's, fault. It's interesting. The uh, We like doing San Fran and New York. Those are basically the two we do these days. We've done a bunch of different ones, and we've won medals in pretty much all of them of, of varying degrees. Um, but San Francisco you we always wanted to play with the big boys mm. even when we're tiny um and that's where that's where you see 
big, big names and not just like special editions of big names, but I think one of the double golds in Rye this year is just, um, is like Rittenhouse Rye, you know, it's just like not a fancy bottle, but it's done by one of the great distilleries in the world. And they're still sending it to competitions because they care and uh, it matters to them, whether it's just search engine optimization or whatever. But I think they want to know that like, Hey, you know, as big as this category gets as many distilleries open, like still like the blue chip is as good as anything. Yeah. You know? So, and I like to, I like to see where we stack up for that. It's interesting. The first time we won double gold at San Francisco, I think there was something like eight double golds in the rye category. And it was like knob Creek, nine year cast strength. And, uh, a couple of MGP sourced rise. Um, only one distillery besides us, I think that was a startup, but I think they were like a big money startup in, in Kentucky or Tennessee. Um, and there are this year, there are 43 double golds, I think in the rye category. Uh, so, and it's not because they're giving them out more easily. It's because there are massive amounts more distilleries making rye these days. I was going to say, yeah. Um, I mean, a thousand more than the first time we competed uh, and it's really interesting. I think they're going to have to break up the rye category like they do bourbon. So now bourbon, it's like bourbon between five and eight and single barrel bourbon and cast strength bourbon all have their own category so that they don't give out a hundred double golds in the bourbon category every year. Um, but rye is becoming such a big deal that I, I think they, they didn't anticipate it, but I think that at this point they'll probably have to break it up into oh, some absolutely. category awesome for for the category um well that's another that's another great point you just brought up i kind of you know a little more kudos to you um and people like you you i want to say when company when these new distilleries kind of start popping up you 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 think okay well these guys are going these guys and gals are going head to head with your big groups your you know your buffalo traces your you know woodfords and stuff like that but now it's like yeah, there's these giants, I guess, but it's that's not really the competition anymore. The competition now is all of these other distilleries that are popping up. I mean, you aren't kidding. I mean, there I, I, I used to know the number of quote unquote craft distilleries in the U.S. I, you, we used to be able to quote that number. I don't think I could quote that number anymore. I think there are so many of them now. Um, he's like, no, Bobby, there's 1,462. Everybody knows that. Um, do your research. No, but there's so many now everywhere and but only a handful of them are doing something really cool doing something really you know they're not just doing it for the sake of it's not like beer where i no offense to beer people i feel like i could go open a brewery you know what i mean and call it bicycle hat brewery and everybody would come drink my beer and just top the shit out of it be like yeah this is a really good one um yeah yeah, right oh shit um damn it yeah i should have oh well what am I talking about? I can edit this. I'll, I'll change the name and then do something with it. Um, but anyway, but I feel like whiskey is a little bit different. Obviously, there's a little more, you know, the legality of making whiskey, the the science behind it, the grain sourcing, things like that. It's a lot different. But making a good whiskey like wine, I think, and not to make it like um, pretentious because whiskey's not pretentious, but whiskey consumers, I think, are a little more picky. Is that, do you agree? You, do you think so? You know, what, you know what I'm trying to say? Like versus I can go to a brewery and do a flight. They're all good. Move on. You're, I feel bad for brewer. Well, okay. I don't feel bad for breweries because it is, um, they're, all, they're all right. An easier place to make money. Yeah. Um, and so for people that are getting into it for the business sense, if you can find, um, 
a neighborhood without a brewery and you can open a brewery with a tap room, then you are probably, you know, if you do a decent job at that, uh, there's a good chance you will be kind of printing money, uh, which is great. Uh, the problem with whiskey, and this is this is something that we have spent a lot of time workshopping this year. The last six months, a lot of my life has been, how do we solve this problem, which is the inventory problem, the disconnect of what I make today versus when I get to sell it. So in 2028, if I had unlimited whiskey, um, which, so you know, some people that are sourcing whiskey have something like unlimited whiskey, if they have a source that they can buy it at the appropriate age and they have the money and the markup where it all makes sense. But if I had unlimited whiskey, I could do a lot of things between now and 2028 that would allow me to be selling a lot of whiskey in 2028. But my problem here today as a producer, without that kind of access and with with making it all on our own system and storing it and aging it and all that good stuff, um, is that I have to, I, I can't produce this year what I want to be selling in 2028. Mm. So it's produce as much as I can. And the better we do this year and the more money we make, and if Epic Reserve really took off and we just sold the hell out of it in Maryland and California and DC and some other markets, then I could make uh, more. But the thing is, is none of the money that I make this year, even if Epic did great, is going to go anywhere except into whiskey production. We'll just make more because we're still not going to be able to make really what we could what we could be in 20 by 2028. Um, so it's an interesting thing. There's this disconnect. You know how lucky I am. Oh, you are so lucky. I know. Being married to you, that's number one, right? That's no joke, babe. It's no joke. And, and I'm going to tell you why. Aside from being married to you, my two favorite independent bottlers mm-hmm. happen to be in the Imprex portfolio. What luck. I know. We've got Adelphi Selections. Yeah. Bottler started in 1993, I want to say. Okay. And Single Malts of Scotland. Yeah. Who those casts are selected by my good friend, Ollie Chilton. I know Ollie. You know Ollie. Yeah. Yeah, he came to drink with us. Uh-huh. So back to the idea of drinking off the beaten path. Oh, this again. If you are looking for a wide array of flavors, going after independently bottled whiskey is where it's at because- their idea is never to repeat a flavor. Never? Never to repeat a flavor. Well. Always bottle something new, always something different, and more importantly, always something delicious mm-hmm. and something that won't steal all of your wallet. Okay. That's I like that part. You like that part. I knew you'd yeah. like that part. So listen, Haida, I have to tell you, and I have to tell our listeners here, Impex Beverages. Yes. Proud sponsor of Cast Chasers Podcast. Excellent. <laughs> So I, in that in that sense, I feel uh, not sorry for beer producers that uh, they just get to make stuff and sell it in real time. And they're such a good model of, you know, even if you don't blow up and become a multi-state or regional brewery with a huge footprint, you can still sell a meaningful amount of beer with, a you know, reasonable overhead to your, your local community and that that is a successful business um that's scalable to us to an extent Mm -hmm. but here's why i do feel sorry for them um is that i in the whiskey world uh, the whiskey world is incredibly detail-oriented in terms of slowly dialing in your flavor profile what ingredients you're using what yeast you're using how long you're aging where you source your barrels did you get the most expensive dry you know outside aged three-year-old wood to make your barrels or did you do kiln dried nine month you know, like there's just a million, a million little variables. Um, 
And this goes not just for whiskey, but for for gin, uh, really across the hard liquor spectrum. Um, you're trying to create like a permanent, iconic, lifetime lasting brand of something that like people can drink for their whole life and appreciate the like deep, subtle nuance of why this is just a tiny bit different than something else. And that's the one yeah. that you connect with on a personal level. And that used to be how breweries did it. They had like their icon beer. And now if you go to the same tap room, you know, monthly, half the list might've shifted over. They have to invent four new beers every season from scratch. It's not like they're releasing last year's stuff. I mean, they're cranking out. A lot of breweries have like 12 different hazy IPAs with just different, uh, you know, different hop profiles where they just threw a different mix of stuff. And there's this pressure to just churn, churn, churn new products, um, new ideas, new kind of fruit in this thing. And they just, it's a response to consumer demand and it's a response to the market in what they have to do to keep people interested because there's so many breweries um, and the tastes are evolved, kind of evolved so quickly in what the current trend is that they don't get the opportunity to create their like, lager that's like not a complicated beer but they spent so much time yeah. like dialing in the recipe over years of brewing at home and then they get to build this whole distillery around this one iconic idea of a beer that you should that like they want you to bond with and drink for your lifetime and that's like become almost impossible in the beer world anymore and it i think it's why a lot of brewers got into it is because they were passionate about creating something like that that would be like a legacy brand and that stuff is just kind of all of a sudden seems to be so inaccessible in a different way where people need to just have an artist on staff to churn out new labels. And I mean, even it used to just be the tap room that had all the temporary stuff, but now there's just new cans with new designs from every brewery, you know, 10 times a year. And how much time and effort could you really be spending on each one of those individually? Like, do you ever feel like you've got the opportunity to do it as absolute best as you possibly can, yeah. which is the polar opposite of what we get to do. We've spent seven years obsessing over one thing in a barrel, making slight alterations on like what our cleaning process is on the fermenter, you know, and how is that going to affect the white whiskey? And then like, we, we, we track that over three years in a barrel to see what the end result was and take tasting notes over time where it's like, we get to obsess over the tiniest thing, trying to create, you know, this like legacy masterpiece thing that like is a reflection of all our hard work. And in beer, it's just like, we're desperate for, we need two new double IPAs by next month. Like Stat. Throw, a, throw, throw a grain bill together, get it in the fermenter and let's rock and roll. Uh, so and it'll be gone before anyone has an opinion of it. You know, that first off deep, Super deep. Um, not to pick on our beer friends, but we love you. Um, I, look, I'm a white guy with a beard. I love craft breweries. You know what I mean? It's you know I I, I, I I slide right into that demographic. Um, but I do agree 100% with you. I feel like you can make some. You can make a lot of mistakes with beer too. Um, you know, if you mess up, I mean, I'm sure if you mess up bad enough, it's ruined. But I mean, you can't tell me a sour wasn't the product of somebody screwing up. There's no way. You drank that and was like, I love sours now, but I think I love them because I was told that I was supposed to love them and now I just love them, I guess. Um, but I feel like somebody might have messed up a little bit. But breweries are like, to your point, they remind me of like, I grew up in the South. I myself have four kids. And I feel like when I 
when my wife and I go out, we have great kids, but we go out with our four kids and we're just like, look, we made these really fast. Um, they're all pretty good individually. And then we hang out with a friend who's got that one kid, you know what I mean? And he's, you know, he's like, uh, he goes to little Einstein's and you know, they, uh, they're like, well, he, you know, we Olympics and gymnastics. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There's so much effort put into that kid. And maybe if they decide to have a second one, it won't be until his doctorals paid off. I feel like that's making whiskey, and I feel like my life with my kids is more beer. You know what I mean? Like each one of them <laughs> quickly produced, yeah. very little thought, a lot of love, but it's like a tap room of here's my kids. Yeah. And I um, – God, I hope they don't listen. I don't want to give them a complex. But no, I could not agree with you more with the different – and that's – again, I like beer. I like wines. I, I love other spirits, but I think whiskey is so unique because of the pressure – of you know being different while not being too different having your signature on it while not confusing it for something else and then at the same time creating a legacy and i think you hit the nail on the head with that term making a legacy your whiskey seems to be one of the few places where you hear this is our flagship bottle you know what i mean this is this defines us and every i don't know a distillery out there that doesn't have that core bottle that they put on the table first and say, before you try anything else, you'll like us if you like this. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Don't call child services on me. No, 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 no. That's, uh, that's how that's how I grew up. I was the I was the third of five. Um, I was I was left at a restaurant two times in my childhood because they thought they had all the kids. <laughs> I had to like go to the host and be like, I think my family left. And I like, turn the car around. Max is still at the restaurant. Go get it. Uh, yeah. Uh, so no, I'm, I'm with it. Um, and it's the opposite. This is why my business partner is a, is a good, uh, a good compliment to me. He's, he's the opposite. He got all the, the attention and love. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, let's talk a little bit about your, your profile specifically. Um, I don't want to hate these kind of questions can get too nuanced and generic, but let's maybe let's zoom out and then we'll zoom in. Talk to me about Maryland whiskeys specifically. Yes, okay. I can, I can, I can do a long version of this. So you so got the, you got the mic, dude. Me along. Um, so Maryland ride. Um, and we do this, we do a blend your own whiskey tour at our distillery where you come in and we do this 15 minute history of rye whiskey and how, how Maryland interacts with that. Um, so if you'd like, if you'd like, uh, to learn more and, and see our spot, I encourage everyone to come visit if you're local. Um, but even, even people in Maryland don't really know as a group, we get a lot of people from Maryland coming in who have no idea that Maryland has a rich whiskey history and not just, a rich whiskey history, like a lot of states back in the day had a lot of distillers. We were one of only two appellations mentioned in federal code when it comes to whiskey and all the federal code that was written at the turn of the 18th to 19th century, 19th to 20th century, mm-hmm. sorry. Um, all, all that federal code, uh, you know, when it talks about you can't mislead people on your labels. So for example, you can't put Maryland straight rye whiskey if it wasn't made in Maryland. Um, and that's why you still see bottles that say Maryland style rye, um, because they're trying to do historic Maryland whiskey, uh, but they're not in Maryland. So federal code prohibits them from calling it Maryland rye whiskey. And it was a big deal. There's kind of, um, it's certainly one of the 
kind of part of the cradle of American whiskey distilling. So whiskey is not, of course, the original American spirit. People were distilling rum and apple brandy uh, before they were distilling rye whiskey. It was really during the Revolutionary War when the uh, British Navy set up a blockade on the uh, Caribbean that we couldn't import sugar to make our own rum and we couldn't import rum from the islands anymore. And hard alcohol was part of the daily rations for our militia. So the militia would have fallen apart without alcohol. The Irish and the Scottish settlers here in the Maryland, uh, Pennsylvania, D.C. area on the shore had brought their kind of cultural historic distilling of grain whiskey to America and essentially on the tobacco farms in the off season, you would plant rye to replenish the tobacco fields. And so it was kind of a throwaway product. And they were taking the throwaway product of rye grain, malting it, distilling it into a kind of a, a crude white whiskey. And when we ran out of rum, we turned to these farmers and said, hey, how can how can we do that? Teach us how to do that. And all of a sudden, America was a rye whiskey country and we were distilling it in large quantities um, post-war. And it was a big thing uh, during the Civil War. Maryland was um, kind of a destination for both the North and the South. So the Union troops would gather in Maryland before deploying into the South and uh, refugees from the South would go up to Maryland uh, when they were kind of fleeing the war-torn South. There was also alcohol prohibition in the South during the Civil War um, because they needed the grain for food. So uh, people were also, if they weren't involved in the war and not invested, you wanted some alcohol, you'd have to go North. Um, so a lot of people ended up in Maryland and started drinking the local rye there. Um, around that time and after and before, Pennsylvania made more gallonage of rye whiskey, uh, but Maryland had more distilleries. So it was a lot of kind of smaller farm-based distilling happened in Maryland, but it was also the third largest whiskey producer in the United States. So not small, but not quite as big as um, I think Kentucky was already producing a ton of spirit and uh, and Pennsylvania as well. Um so during but during the Civil War, a lot of people started drinking the local rye in Maryland. And when the Civil War ended and they dispersed across the country, they wanted their Maryland rye because they had grown accustomed to the kind of quality and uh, character of the things that were happening in Maryland. So between essentially between the Civil War and the turn of the century, Maryland rye was the pinnacle, most demanded, most sought after version of American whiskey uh, in the country. So if you went to a bar in San Francisco, uh, when Jerry Thomas was bartending out there and you asked for a Maryland rye, they would have it. And there wasn't a Panama Canal at the time, so they would have had to ship it all the way around the horn. Mm -hmm. People were literally risking their lives to run Maryland rye from Maryland to California at the time. And you could find it all over the United States. Uh, if you watch the show Deadwood, in one of the seasons on the back bar, there's a sign that says Maryland rye, uh, which is a cool little That's detail. Cool. That they yeah. Um, so it was, it was a really big deal. Uh, it really was one of the monsters of American distilling. Um, and it was not a homogenous thing. It was not like there was a green bill or, or anything that really defined it. Um, you know, further west in the state would have been higher rye for further east in the state would have been a higher corn content. Uh, but there were also distilleries in and around Baltimore that um, didn't use any corn. They were doing 100% rye. So the whole... Maryland rye versus Monongahela or Pennsylvania style rye thing is a dichotomy that happened really. I think, I think it became much more defined well after Maryland rye had gone away. So basically when the Kentucky distillers bought all the Maryland rye brands and started making 51% rye as the, the Maryland rye bill and 95% rye as the Pennsylvania rye, I think that's when people started associating it exclusively with high corn. 
Um, historically, there was more corn used in Maryland uh, because of the growing conditions, but it wasn't ubiquitous. You would have found both in both states. Um, it was really just kind of a quality thing. Um, Post-Civil War, or sorry, post-turn uh, post of the century, we've got World War One, and then uh, Prohibition, and then World War II. So there's this huge gap in meaningful rye production in Maryland. Um, and when they when the rye production did come back, it actually, the distilleries that opened were, a lot of them weren't locally owned. A lot of New York firms had bought stakes and tried to open the brand. So it was a big deal, Maryland rye. Um, but it wasn't kind of the same thing anymore. There was also, a, you know, a 30-year gap where people who turned 21 towards the beginning of World War One, when the Maryland distillery started making uh, fuel alcohol instead of spirit and then through prohibition and all the rest, they had no relationship with the demand for Maryland rye or any association of what it was supposed to be. So all these non-locally owned kind of corporate distilleries opened, and then there wasn't really any demand for Maryland rye because talking about a huge gap in generational drinking and association with the brand. And so they all started closing. All the brands started getting bought up by out-of-state stuff. A lot of the brands moved to Kentucky. 1978, Pikesville quit producing. Early 80s, they officially closed the doors and left, um, bought by Heaven Hill. Uh, and that that was kind of the end. That was the end of Maryland Rye. But uh, it really did have, you know, 100 years where it was one of the three most important uh, whiskey states in the United States and 50 years where it was the de facto uh, highest quality Maryland, Maryland, uh, rye whiskey producing state, uh, in the state. So when we started the project in 2013, there were zero distilleries in the state of Maryland. And it was one of our absolute core, um, goals was to return heritage distilling of our heritage spirit to the state of Maryland and really in Maryland's cultural heart, which is Baltimore. Yeah. I'm a, so first off, brilliant. Um, I'm a, I love history, man. Um, I, I, I've heard stories and, like pieces of I'd like to do a little more research um, if anyone out there wants to uh, jump on the show with me and give me a little bit of the Kentucky history that would be great because I've heard like bits and pieces of where the world of whiskey in Kentucky kind of came from and bourbon and the various stories there but I love I love what you're talking about with Maryland um, because we are this is kind of the it is the pinnacle whiskey spot i mean washington was make was distilling you know what i mean scots like you said um in the irish were distilling here we have it, it and the proofs in the pudding because we have so many you know ports and rivers and it's just a web of of uh, transport that came through this area and if you think about where whiskey comes from and the need for barrels and the need for you know moving and the need for moving grain we're really kind of this is it this is the this is the pivot and all the cities the major cities that would be consuming it your philadelphia's your your dc baltimore new york these old cities these old you know areas um it all started here it, this is the cradle of american whiskey and i'm glad to see it's coming back alive and i think the more we can get people to appreciate i'd like to see a maryland bourbon or i'm sorry a maryland whiskey trail you know what i mean i think that would be I'd like to see that here. It's being built. Yeah. Um, we actually just passed a law. I did uh, my fair share of of uh, testifying in Annapolis this year. Uh, but uh, rye whiskey uh, was voted and passed uh, as the official state spirit of Maryland this year. Um, so it's not easy to get them. I know it feels like there's like a state, you know, 
fingernail polish color as so, but but it's, it's really not easy to get these things passed and we went we purple. went and made it <laughs> by the way um purple on one hand orange on the other yeah. um it's a yeah so so we got that and part of the pitch on this was like the, the history is real and everyone already knows it's maryland state spirit like we're not asking to change anyone's mind we're just asking to codify it and by codifying it it allows maryland um it allows the tourism department to actually spend money on promoting it and so part of this pitch was like look what kentucky's been able to achieve with their their history and their infrastructure like there's like 40 distilleries in maryland now it's really come back and it's what's cool about it is almost all of them are these like smaller locally like involved in the community things much like it was when maryland was most famous for rye um and so it's going to allow Maryland to actually invest in something like a Maryland trail. And of course there's the whiskey rebellion trail, which yep. goes into Pennsylvania and Maryland. So we're part of that. Uh, but we're hoping to get something that's uh, formalized on the state level, uh, kind of rocking and rolling in the next couple of years. I love it, man. Um, before we, and time is moving so fast. Um, I just, if you know what it's like listeners to make a podcast, you get to hang out with cool people and talk to them. But you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be wary of time because you're not going to listen to a 20 hour episode. But as a host and as somebody's interested, it's very hard to end these things because I want to, I want to just keep drinking and hanging out, which we'll do on our own. You just won't get to be there, which sucks for you unless you find me. Um, but before we wrap it up, Max, you, you make more than whiskey. Shocker. Um, first off. I'll post pictures when this episode comes out. Do your own research, uh, uh, Chasers, because you have beautiful bottles. Um, I'm not, I like what's in the bottle, but you guys make gorgeous bottles. But you also make some really cool other spirits, um, which if you've listened to any episode, you know that you ha- kind of have to. If you're going to make whiskey, you got to make some other stuff too, because you got to keep the bar moving, um, as it were. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about what else you're producing out there? Yeah, absolutely. What's nice about being a, a three-man team <clears throat> with no corporate interests is that there's very few people to say no. Uh, so when somebody gets really excited about something, usually it's a, you know, if you can figure it out, like it's got to be good enough. We have like a threshold of quality where something doesn't come out. And we've had projects that we have started, worked on, and just completely abandoned because they just weren't going to gonna meet our standards. But Everything we've put into bottle, we're really passionate about. Um, we do some one-off stuff, which is only available in the tasting room. Uh, and that's for like when we just get a little bit of a wild wind about us and want to do something, but it's not something we're planning on adding to the whole lineup. Um, but the, the full lineup, we do an amazing line of gin. The Shot Tower gin line is fantastic. I know every producer makes gin. It's a real problem. I wish they wouldn't because there's so much gin made out there by people that don't like gin and it's convenient. It's a convenient thing to make. It comes out ready to bottle and it's a big category. So there's people out there that drink gin and they'll try it and buy it. So I understand the cash flow appeal of it. Um, but as somebody, you know, we, we spent two years developing the original recipe for shot tower. Um, and we spent another 18 months on the only variation of that recipe we've done, which is the skeleton spirit. Uh, and they are both what I can, I consider them two of the great American gins period. I don't ever think that they're going to be nationwide brands because there's just there's 82 local gins in every state uh and it's just really hard to sell a new gin and we're ours is not a gimmicky gin this is your this is your plug and i'm going to interrupt for two seconds and i want to be very transparent here 
the first rye I ever fell in love with, I, it was the first one I ever fell in love with was Catoctin. I'll be honest. Um, Epic rye is incredible. It's delicious. I have bottles. I love it. The first gin I ever fell in love with, because I hated gin, was yours. I, I mean that with all my heart because every time I've ever had a gin, and I'm not a gin guy, maybe it's just I, I have it, I have it in a cocktail, I'm like trash, trash, trash. I had it neat at the Whiskey Roundup, your gin, and I thought, and I remember all of us talking, thinking, if gin tasted like this, I'd be drinking it by the bottle. So I just want to give you that kudos, and I've had a lot of gin, and it was all trash, all tra- all tastes like soap. But you do something, you. yeah. You do something way different. Um, it, it so it, it it is honed. It is you have mastered that. So anyway, I digress. I just wanted you to hear that. No, thank you very much. I love I love to hear it. I really truly believe Shot Tower Gin, the original, is one of the great American dries. Period. I'll put it up against anything. So um, if you have the opportunity, people of the world, um, and you love gin, I I think do yourself a favor, find it. Um, so we, we do a gin, we do the gin line, uh, and there's some variations thereupon, including a, a summer cup version that came out last year, which is fun because we're one of the few people in America that make a summer cup, which is, uh, Pim's cup is kind of the one everybody knows, but if you're, uh, in England, a, a bunch of gin producers do it. It's essentially a, uh, kind of a gin liqueur that's meant to be had in low ABV cocktails while it's sunny and hot. And it's a, a wonderful, easy thing. Really lovely. Uh, we do a line of Amari, um, and ours are pretty eclectic. Uh, front to back, but we do four. The Szechuan Amaro is the one that gets the most attention because it's the most out of the box, but um, it's fantastic. It's been in in so many great bar programs. Um, I, I I can't even begin to list them, but that that's really fun. Uh, and we do some apple brandy products, which is of course also native to Maryland and one of the historic American spirits. Um, if every everybody should be making fruit brandies. It's such a there's such a connection to the place in the world and the kind of local culture of fruit brandy. You know, if you're in Eastern Europe, you're drinking plum brandy. And if you're in France, you're drinking grape brandy. And, you know, you can just leave fruit out and it ferments itself. So it's kind of the easiest thing one could stumble upon to drink and uh, distill into, into hard alcohol, which is why almost every culture with a distilling history has some kind of fruit brandy association because it just happens by itself. Uh, so I always find the connection between fruit brandies um, and and kind of a local, I don't know, I'm miss, missing a word in terms of like local um, local growing culture and what the kind of historic foods that grow around there are. There's a really, mm. really fun connections there. So we do apple brandy products, uh, the, the Amari, the gin, uh, and rye whiskey, of course, sits right central in the middle of it all. Um, yeah. I love it. Let me ask you a question before, and then, and then we'll, this will be my final question. And I think I'm not, the maxes of the world can't handle a question like this. Um, I'm going to throw you, I'm going to, for no reason at all, I'm going to throw you a curveball. Is that okay? Oh yeah, please. All right, Max, you and I, we, for whatever reason in this, and this thing I'm making up right on the spot, we find ourselves in prison and we get a life term. You and I, we're, we're there together. We both like our whiskeys. I can't make it. I can only drink it. What are you making me in the toilet? I mean, what do we? What kind of spirit are you creating? Knowing all the prison ingredients you have, you know what I mean, sure. and the natural yeast that I can, I'll collect the yeast for you. Um, what is your ideal prison toilet spirit? Uh, well, I'll tell you that I've I've heard of some prison spirits that I'm unwilling to speak upon. <laughs> 
in in the podcast. Um, okay. And, and I think those would require some desperate times. But, uh, you know, the easy answer is some fruit brandy. It can't be impossible to get an apple yeah. in prison. Right. You know? Uh, and you just... We plug we plug the toilet from the top so water doesn't fill. We put we squeeze apples in there, any fruit we can get that that's not too high in acidity, no oranges or lemons or limes. But apples and pears, you know, come Christmas time we get I'm sure people all the time are taking delivery of those giant boxes of Christmas sure. pears, you know, and handing them out amongst their cellmates to celebrate um the holidays. Well, we wouldn't hand them out. We'd hoard the pears, mm-hmm. it would juice them into the toilet. Um, we would of course use our next door neighbor's toilet, uh, for the time being, yeah, or just the rec yard yeah. maybe. Um, and we would ferment our pears in there and I, I would build a, a crude still. I don't think I could, um, have access to copper to remove the sulfates from the alcohol vapor. So it might just be a little bit of a sulfury thing, but I also think I could rig the flushing mechanism of the toilet to constantly flush cold water through the condenser so that we wouldn't have to worry about it ourselves or anything. I think we could. I think we could get it done. <laughs> I pulled that question out of my ass, and you championed it. Um, I hope I have listeners in prison. I, I don't know if you guys get podcasts, but if you're listening, that one was for you. Um, not to uh, correlate uh, Baltimore spirit with anything from prison or toilets, but um, Maryland does have a very rich um, prison history too. We got a lot of prisons you can uh, you can visit. Um, and if you're in prison, you know, get that fruit. You've already committed a crime. What, what's what's? I mean, come on. Um, yeah. What are you What are you waiting on? Um, I encourage my listeners, ser- on a serious note, to experience first and foremost experience Maryland whiskeys. Maryland is producing historically some incredible whiskeys, award winning whiskeys. Um, it's brilliant stuff. You're going to find it on the shelf. If you can't reach out to Baltimore spirits, reach out to us. I'll see what I can do. I can be a little more sneaky than they can. If the feds are listening, you heard me right. Um, I'll, I'll walk it to them. I'll do it the right way. Um, if you live in another country and you want it, you got to fly out. I don't know how else you're going to get it, but try, try a Maryland spirits, try Baltimore spirits company. Look at their brand. Look at their stuff. You trust me. I've get, I get your letters. I get your, not letters, your emailing. No one's written me a letter. No. Well, actually I've gotten some letters, um, but I've read your emails. I've read your comments. You do trust my palate. You trust what I like. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, Max and his team are creating some brilliant whiskeys, brilliant spirits. I'm not joking when I say that when I tasted that gin for the first time, I fell in love. Um, I wouldn't have him on the show again. You know, two-time guest means I'm really in love. Um, so they're making great stuff. And uh, I, I encourage you to find it, drink it, love it, and support. Um, and just remember, it's, uh, you know, it's not about finding the perfect dram. It's just all in the chase. Thanks, Chasers. Max, thanks for being here, buddy. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me on, man. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.